0: Let's turn this evening to the book of 1 John. This is a study, an exposition that it has been about six and a half, maybe seven years since we went through the book of 1 John. And some may not even be aware that we've we've taught all the way through it. I will tell you at the outset that certainly the first time that I preached through it, uh, I did not feel as um, equipped, and I don't mean that in a prideful way, to preach through this book. Uh, There's been a lot in this particular study, especially as I've been uh, praying and preparing for where we would go after our study in 2 Peter, and this book has this especially 1st, 2nd, 3rd John have been a great encouragement to me personally. Uh, they are epistles that I turn to often, probably 1st John more than the others, but uh, nevertheless, they are, they are epistles that are of great comfort. In this particular study, as so we're going to approach this, I'm going to approach this from a different perspective in that uh, our goal is not to cover uh, necessarily uh, all one thought in each Wednesday. Uh, it's, it, it is to grab and to understand the concepts, and that may involve only looking at one verse. And we may just look at one verse on a Wednesday evening, and we'll spend this, that entire time uh, looking at the principles that were being taught there. As we set off, we'll notice that First uh, John chapter 1 is just 10 verses. So I'm gonna read just the entire chapter tonight. And then tonight is primarily an introduction to this book. I'm gonna give you some background. Again, I don't want this to be so academic that uh, we lose interest, and I hope you do not, uh, but I certainly wanna give you some of the background to this particular study and then give you some insight as to uh, where we're going with this. Uh, First John chapter one, you'll notice the abruptness of the start of this is very different than many other epistles and many other books of the Bible. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin, us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Our subject tonight is simply, just as an introductory topic or subject, is just simply the faith of God's elect. The faith of God's elect. Uh, You'll notice with me that this epistle doesn't bear any superscriptions. It lacks many of the common greetings that we see, especially in the epistles of Paul, where Paul gives this formal greeting about who he is, uh, why he's writing. This epistle just starts with a very abrupt but very powerful first few words. And it's a reference, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is referred to as the word of life. We also, throughout this book, we will notice, and even in this opening chapter, that there are no references made to a particular group. It is not addressed to one particular church. So, it is nearly impossible to determine to whom this letter was first addressed. Now, we do know a few things. Uh, We do know the author is John. Uh, We do know that from Galatians 2.9 that John was one of the apostles who ministered unto the circumcision. Uh, We see various expressions such as in 1 John 2.7, from the beginning. Uh, In 1 John 2.13, you have known him. Uh, 1 John 2.18 and 19, you've heard that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists. They went out from us. And so there is the suggestion that this particular letter was primarily written or addressed to Jewish Christians, and that's the primary audience. However, uh, in a later chapter, in chapter 4, there's a mention made of the world. Uh, even before that, in John, 1 John 2.2, 2, the word whole world is given, and there's an admonition in 1 John 5.21 about keeping yourselves from idols. Now, there's more than a few clues throughout this book and this epistle that suggest that it was designed not just for Jewish Christians, but for all who are in the faith, Gentile believers as well. Now... We might not think it's remarkable that there's no reference to, to places. There's no reference to even local things. Uh, many of the epistles, it's made mention of a town, it's made mention of a city or a particular landmark. First John doesn't have any of those. There is no, nothing that gives us a, a frame of reference as to exactly what does he have in mind when he says these things. Yet it's remarkable in how many truths in in these chapters that it gives us. And how many doctrinal errors are being combated. It doesn't name people. It doesn't name places. But all of it is said to be suited to those who are God's children. So it's a general epistle. It's not given to a particular church. But the whole family, the whole family of God is known as what? the gods elect. So in accordance with that, that there is no reference here, there's also not any references made to the hierarchy and the structure of a church. There's no elders or pastors addressed, there's no deacons mentioned, but there are privileges. There are privileges that the child of God experiences, and then there are also responsibilities that all are being told These are the things that those who are of the household of faith partake of. So John deals with just about every principle of life, spiritual life especially. He deals with basic principles of life. But he doesn't necessarily say, now, how do you apply this to certain people? How do you apply this in the church? How do you apply this to husbands? How do you apply this to wives? Think about the book of Colossians or the book of Ephesians, how Paul took the doctrine in the first parts of his letters, and then he applies it to certain people groups. Husbands, love your wives, like in Ephesians. Children, obey your parents. We don't have any of that. Now, we do see John make reference to little children. And that'll, that's very interesting as to why he does that. And oftentimes we mistake that to be, oh, he's writing a children's letter. Well, no, that's not exactly what he means. And although he doesn't show us how to apply these relationships, he does give us detail about what righteousness looks like, what love between the brethren looks like. He doesn't use the word saints. He uses the word more frequently Brethren. A brethren is one of those beautiful words. It's, a, it's an expression that suggests a very close knit community. As a matter of fact, in chapter 2, verse 7, he says, Brethren, I write no new commandment. He's writing to people who are very dear to him, even though it's not written to one particular church. And to be honest, that's the way the people of God should feel about one another. Brethren, yes, we're saints. But we are brethren, and 1 John 3.13, he uses the expression, my brethren, which makes those statements such as little children and my little children even more endearing. Now, again, I could only find one other time in the New Testament where the phrase little children was being used, and that was by Paul in Galatians 4.19, where he made reference to the people there as little children. Now, this has led many people to believe that John must have been quite aged by this point, and he's writing as as an older saint, as an older believer. So we want to think about this particular book as a book that's being written to us uh, even though some of the uh, specifics, uh, we may have a difficult time seeing. How does this apply to us? Now tonight I want to give us three very simple headings and dealing with in an overall introductory view to this particular book. First heading is the nature of the faith of God's elect. What is the nature? What does, what does, the, what does faith look like? in the household of faith or the household of god second heading is the hope of the faith of god's elect where is our hope why are we hopeful and then third heading is the true faith of god's elect what sets the household of faith the household of god apart from every other faith and so we're going to use those as our headings tonight and, again, give you very general principles tonight to begin this study into 1 John. So, first of all, the nature of the faith of God's elect. Some of the contents of 1 John, uh, we are told very clearly throughout this. Again, this will be a very high overview of what, the, of what this book is about. Now, oftentimes, when we begin a study of a book, uh, we start off trying to determine what is the purpose 1 John is a difficult book to determine, to nail down one purpose. Now, many people have said, oh, the purpose of 1 John is the assurance of salvation. Well, that's one of them, but that's not all of them. Uh, There certainly is an element of the assurance of salvation, but we find out that the assurance of salvation is based upon more than just an expectation of, okay, how do I get it? Um, So the aim is often different than the purpose. Sometimes we say, what's the purpose? Well, what's the aim? Uh, the aim is the gospel. There's no question about that. Uh, we, we could take books like the book of Acts. Uh, we could take Paul's pastoral epistles and we could think about, okay, what's he aiming at? Uh, some of his pastoral epistles, he's aiming at the office of pastor. He's aiming at the office of elder. He's, he's dealing with church life. But then you get to this and you you don't see those landmarks. You don't see churches. You don't see individual names. You don't see places. So in the case of John here, there is this problem that we tend to run into. Now, I would encourage you to do this sometime during our study is to sit down and read all of 1 John in one setting. Read it from verse 1 all the way to the end of the epistle. Read it in one setting. And what you're going to find is that if you read it honestly and you read it that way, you're going to find that it seems to be a bit disjointed. It seems as if he's talking about this one minute and then he's talking about this the next minute. But the reality here is, is that it's not a, a rambling letter. Um, it's, it's, it, it is pointed and it has a purpose, and it has an aim. Um, It appears sometimes that he's talking to little children. Other times it appears that he's dealing with seasoned saints, if you will, those who have been saved for a while. Other times he appears to be talking to people who maybe don't seem to have as strong of a foundation. But he's also preoccupied with something, and I think it's important that we get this, and I think we need to get it settled because there is something that was going on in John's day that we're not as familiar with, but it's still relevant. One of the great heresies during the penning of this letter was the heresy of Gnosticism. Now a Gnostic, and again I'm not going to get into much detail about that, but this was a particular problem in the day and age in which this was penned. Now we might say Gnosticism is not as big of a deal in our day as it was in John's day. But just to give you a little bit of a background, then this is what really helps set the foundation for the verses we'll start looking at next week. And again, some of you maybe have done a study on, on what a Gnostic is. Now this is not the same as agnostic. Okay, this is not the same thing. Uh, Gnosticism is something entirely different. Uh, Basically, what Gnosticism is, is that they believed that the material world was created not by the one true God, but by an imperfect yet divine being. So they're coming from the perspective of, yes, we believe the material world was created, but not by God Almighty, but by an imperfect divine being. Now, some who've studied Gnosticism a lot deeper than I have have said that their actual belief was is that Satan was actually the creator of the material world. Now, again, I'm not gonna stand me dogmatic about that. I've not studied it deep enough to know if that's the case, but there were varying forms of this Gnosticism. Now, again, that's gonna be very important, especially when we look at next week about why it matters so much about hearing and seeing the word of life. The second thing is you need to keep in mind is these Gnostics were dead set against Christianity. So it wasn't that they just didn't believe in a God, an Almighty God. They believed that everything in Christianity was to be rejected. So they set themselves, they set themselves like flint against it. Said, look like a rock. I'm not. We're not going to allow any of this to be permeate society. They also believed something very sad, and, but yet interesting, about Christ himself. Uh, the Gnostics believed that Christ only appeared to suffer and to die, that it was all an illusion. They couldn't deny that a man went up on a cross, but what they would not admit is that it just appeared that he suffered and that he died. So again, Gnosticism is a very prevalent part of why John says some of the things that he does. Now, that helps us understand, at least basically, why this is important. Now, to understand these epistles, and especially this first one, we have to come to understand that this is not a rambling letter, but these are very precise, reasoned, and ordered (laughs) thoughts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Bible is inspired which means this is not the ramblings or the musings of a blogger, okay? I'm not trying to be cute, but this is not rambling musings of a person who just gets online and says, I think I'm going to just ramble some thoughts. This is precisely ordered. So the order in which he writes, how the subjects come up, where they're found, all are ordered by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There's also within this letter very profound and deeply theological topics dealt with. Deeply theological, spiritual truths that are the the, the very fabric and the very foundation of what we believe. And I think so that we make sure we put away and don't think because this is the Gnostics, that's not a problem in our day and age, it's highly relevant today precisely against the dangerous situations that are confronting our churches. Now, you may or may not be aware of that. Now, if you've been here on Wednesday nights, we've been talking about false teachers in First and 2 Peter. But I don't think we fully understand what's really going on in the churches. And situations that, yes, all power be to God. The gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. But that doesn't mean that the churches are not facing very dangerous situations with regard to these things that are in this letter. So I want us to keep that in mind. Now, he does use sometimes very simplistic language to teach us very high theological truths. Now, again, it's not because John didn't know what he was writing. It's not because he was shallow. He also does something that oftentimes we might find a bit peculiar. He repeats himself. Repetition. He'll have an entire chapter devoted to a thought, and then later on another chapter picks up and just expands upon a thought we thought we already covered, and it shows the importance of why we divide that material up. Now, there are references that we'll see that John makes to people, and again, remember the Gnostics did not believe that Jesus Christ really suffered and died. Along with that, they also did not believe that Christ really came in the flesh, that God really was incarnated. Now again, that's what drives a lot of what's happening here. Um, these Gnostic heretics, these, these individuals Uh, We can easily look at this book and we could treat it as this doesn't matter to us because we don't deal with Gnosticism so much now. John is not just dealing with the heretics of his own time, but he's giving us principles of how every believer, no matter what age you live in, how we are supposed to deal with these heresies. Now, Again, you might say, Pastor, we just spent weeks in 2 Peter. Do we really need to do this? Yes, we do because the reality is is that these this book and again sometimes people will balk at this these epistles contain more commands and principles about our responsibility as believers to separate from error now again we're living in a day when the churches are being confronted with dangerous situations and instead of separating from error they're compromising with it. They're trying to find common ground as to how can we still, quote-unquote, worship together. And this epistle specifically says you can't do that. You have to completely separate yourself from it. Now, biblical separation is a, is a, an ex, is a, a term that has been widely misused for many, many years. But there is a call to separation, a separation from that which is false to that which is true. So the key then to understanding, especially this first epistle of John, is to approach it with the idea that there is something that we need to know. You know, we anticipate a lot of things in our life. I hope that we anticipate what God's word has to say. There are very direct instructions for local churches, even today, what do we do when a dangerous situation presents itself? Now again, it'd be easy for us to completely check out right now and say, there is nothing dangerous gonna happen to this little church on Petrie Road. Nobody even knows we're here, nobody even cares. That's where you're wrong. Anywhere where the word of God is being proclaimed and Christ is being exalted is a target. It's a target for heresy, and it's a target for dangerous situations to show up on our front doorstep. So this is not something that's just, well, you know, I can take it or leave it. You know, I, I'd, I'd, rather have a, I'd rather have a sermon on, 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 on how to manage my family, and those are important. But we also need to keep in mind that 1 John is essentially principles. Principles about how do we separate from doctrinal error. Now, the first part of the epistle explains really what's the basis of a true convert. What's, what's, what the, what's real conversion look like? The second part deals with the marks of true conversion. What are the characteristics? What are the signs of somebody who's truly converted? Now, those who are truly converted, as we'll see throughout the letter, actually have obligations. And responsibilities and then the last part deals with a review of not only true conversion but the marks of true conversion and how that promotes our assurance see what everybody wants in our instant world is you just want to be granted assurance without doing anything we just want to be sure we're saved but we're we're ignoring what's happening in the chapters of 1st John because it's as we fulfill our obligations That's where assurance comes from. See, we we want everything instantly. We want our sanctification done yesterday. We want people converted in a flash. And yet, the number one problem we have is we're not even willing to do anything to assist us in understanding what that assurance is. So, there are very peculiar contents. That's the nature of what 1 John is. Now, quickly, what are the purposes and the comfort of this particular book? Well, first of all, one of the chief purposes is to describe and define the fundamentals of the faith. What are the foundational stones? Secondly, to describe the duties, yes, obligations, and privileges of believers. Now again, the second part's easy. We all enjoy the privileges of being a believer. We don't like the obligations. We don't like the fact that there are things we are commanded to do. The third purpose is that it gives us a spiritual test. It tests to see, do we have real spiritual life? Now, what's that meant to do? That's meant to comfort you. That's meant to give you encouragement. That's meant to give you assurance. But it's also to give us something that we're lacking. And there's not anyone in this room that doesn't need more of this. Discernment. To be able to discern between good and evil. To be able to discern between spiritual right and spiritual wrong. Fourth purpose teaches us the scriptural basis of fellowship towards each other. Now again, even though he doesn't mention us church specifically, he's talking about fellowship in churches and other believers. How do we extend fellowship? And here's an important question. Who do we extend fellowship to? Do we extend fellowship to anybody who claims the name of God? Or are there requirements for that? And then another one that's often ignored in our churches today is to challenge us to a greater effort towards our own personal holiness. Living holy lives. Sixth purpose, to give comfort. By reminding us of the promises of God, especially when we're under trial. If you've been under trial recently, there's no greater comfort than knowing what the Word of God says. That's where your comfort comes from. And then the last one, which will probably be the one that will, when we get to it, explaining Antichrist. And more than just Antichrist being one individual that we're looking for, instead of remembering that the spirit of Antichrist is already alive and well. So those are, that's the nature, the nature of these peculiar things. These are things that relate to believers and what believers do with them. Now notice in that first chapter, in the first verse that we read, that abrupt beginning, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. He says, we have seen. This is the hope of the faith of God's elect. That's the second heading. So true faith is exclusively Christ-centered. So a person who claims to have true faith has a faith that is centered on Christ. Christ is the subject of much of this epistle and much of this letter. Exclusively christ Center. Now we'll get into the exposition of that particular book or that chapter and verse next week. But what that's doing in the very first chapter is giving us definitions of what true Christianity is. I most preachers never thought they would have to define this, but we're at a place now where you have to define what true Christianity is. It's no longer I'm saved. It's no, it never should have been, I go to church. But we have to define what true Christianity is and what authentic conversion looks like. It's it's a passage, the whole first chapter is designed to establish the necessity of the redemption that is provided by Jesus Christ alone. You see, he jumps quickly into sin and saying, if you, have no, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. So these opening verses are essential to understanding these later passages. So whenever he refers to, just, to Christ, he's not just referring to the person of Christ, Okay, and this is key to understanding this, but all that Christ stands for. Christ is more than just a person who came and bled and died and went to, the cross, went to the cross, died, was taken from that cross. It means his entire person, his offices, his titles, his attributes, his accomplishments. Whenever John uses the name Christ, he's defining the entire Christian message. He's not just talking about a person. He's talking about everything that Christianity is, is found in Christ. Everything. Christ is the entire message of redemption in a person. We'll see John use phrases like, we have seen Christ. Or even like he says in verse 1, we have heard, we have seen, we have looked, our hands have handled it is saying, "I've seen the truth, I've handled the truth," not just about Christ, but his entire atoning, redeeming work, and what conversion looks like. Now oftentimes we hear people say things like, "I have found the Lord," or, "I have been saved." what is it to find salvation? What is it to be converted? Well, conversion always begins with a conviction of sin. It's a conviction of sin and it leads to a repentance before God. It, it means a true convert has bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and the gospel. It's being fully yielded to all that Christ is. It's a statement of faith. It's a belief in the gospel. We've seen Christ. That very first verse, what John is saying, he is stating that is a confession of faith, that everything that is found in Christ Jesus is Christianity and it is salvation. The word of life. So we see this as John writes these things. John's writing and using words that are very illustrating about what he's trying to get across. Now, look at that statement, verse 2. Again, we'll get more into this next week. But look, think about these two verses, just these first two verses, what this encompasses. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Again, he repeats it again. We've seen it. And then verse 3, we've seen and heard, declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. Now we're going to talk about that. That's the basis of Christian fellowship right there. Christ. Christ. Not just one aspect of Christ, but his entire person is what's at the heart here. These words, especially there in verse 2, those words aren't just giving you a choice. It's demanding a belief in Christ. You know, we say this often. The gospel is not an invitation for someone to receive. It's a command to believe. And that's a tremendous difference. If we approach the gospel as an invitation to receive it instead of a command to believe it, we're already starting on the wrong foot. It's not an invitation to receive it. It's a command to believe it. It's a command to repent. What are, they, what are we repenting of and what are we confessing? That this Jesus, this word of life that was manifested to us, eternal life, Every word and action that he did is infallible, eternal truth. Now, I don't think anybody here that I'm aware of would reject any of Christ's teaching. But you know, part of acknowledging Christ and confessing him is also accepting the totality of what he taught. It's, it's not questioning, oh, well, that particular miracle, I've, I've got a little bit of problem with that. We, we've, we've been so long duped by asking Jesus into our heart, we're not even, we don't even know what Jesus we're asking. It, J- Jesus is just this nebulous idea. John is writing from a person, as from a perspective of, I've seen him. I've heard him. I've handled him. Now, again, he's speaking as an apostle. But you know, in order to grasp who Jesus Christ is, it is seeing him, it's hearing him, it's handling the word of life. And yet, sometimes Jesus is just presenting at, presented as, hey, if you want to go to heaven, just put your faith in this nebulous man that you don't really know anything about, what you know about him is I'm telling you that he's, he's died for your sins and I'm telling you that, he, but are they really grasping what that means? It's, as I've mentioned to you many, many times, oftentimes the first, the first gospel preaching doesn't start with Jesus Christ as the atonement. What, what does that even mean? And if we go out in our evangelism and we're trying to give people, a, 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 like they understand it. He says, we've seen, we've heard, we've handled. He who is eternal life. It is acknowledging the, the Christ in his totality. Not just, here's this, here's this man, this person, this God. I want you to put your trust in. I want you to put your faith in. That's why I entitled this the faith of God's elect. The faith of God's people isn't like that. Like, tonight, if, if you're in Christ, you should have a greater understanding of who Christ is than just the simple, well, I, I put my trust in this Christ, but beyond that, I don't really know anything else about him. The reality is, is this is accepting and acknowledging all that he is. Now, can it really be said, if I question an aspect of Christ? atoning death, or if I question, did he really die a substitutionary death? Does that affect really what I believe? It absolutely does. So would you tell a person who says, well, I I believe in Jesus Christ, everything, everything except the substitutionary death part. Is that common fellowship? Is that common faith? No. But how many people, when you give the gospel to them, even know what substitutionary atonement is? How many of them even know what it means that he died as the substitute? He who knew no sin became sin for us. How far, how far do we have to go to say no fellowship because there's not understanding of who Christ is? Christ is the embodiment of all that is true. He did come in the flesh. Now, a person who sincerely is trusting and believing that Christ came in the flesh, he, the incarnation cannot at the same time deny the miracles or deny what he taught. So, In other words, you can't say, oh, I believe he came in the flesh, but I deny his miracles and I deny his teaching that's a contradiction that we t- you you can't explain to reject Christ's teaching but to place your faith in him to save you would be the utmost of contradictions what if i'm placing my faith in him but i deny his miracles i'm still contradicting myself what if i deny his resurrection I'm contradicting. You see it's taking Christ in his totality. That's why the hope of the faith of God's elect is we have seen. It is true faith is Christ centered. And then thirdly, the true faith of God's elect, that phrase the word of life. True faith is evidenced by what we'll just refer to going forward as marks of grace. What are the signs that show us that we have spiritual life? Again, yeah, now, these are, these are common practical things. Now, again, what this is not is not saying, did you pray? Or when did you repent? When did you believe? These are characteristics. These are signs of people who have been converted and have real, true faith. These are the things that will be present with them. And that's what this, the first John talks about all of these. So this is, this is just an overview. And the first one that might surprise you is that there is a conscience about our holiness. We are conscious about, are we living holy lives? Now in most churches, that has gone to the very bottom. It has sunk like a weight. And yet John lays out that one of the first marks of grace is personal holiness. That has disappeared. From most every church. Now again, we're gonna get into some issues because then there's gonna be what do you define as personal holiness? And that's where preferences come in, and someone says, Well, personal holiness is this, and if you do this and you're not really that's why we wanna see what God's Word says. But ultimately, that was one of the marks of grace is personal holiness. The second one, and maybe we could flip-flop these two, because this one sounds like it could be come before that one, being fully yielded to the authority of God's holy word. Fully yielded to it. What does that mean to be fully yielded to it? That means you're, you, you not only believe it, you're yielded to its teachings. You, you are, I believe it, and I'm, I'm, I want to obey it. I'm not just coming to church to hope the preacher gives me something to make me feel better. I'm yielded to whatever the word of God says for that day. I'm yielded to its realities in my life. The third sign or mark is true spiritual fellowship with other believers. Can there be any such thing as a true believer who wants nothing to do with other Christians? Not according to the Bible, it can't be. Love for the brethren, John later says, is the evidence that you've passed from death unto life is your love for the brethren. So the person that says, I'm just one of those loner Christians, I don't want spiritual fellowship, there's something wrong with your conversion. Something is not right. It's a mark of grace. You want to be around God's people. Fourth one that'll be very popular when we get to it is the separation from the things of the world. Now, again, this is, this is going to be one of those areas where we're gonna, you're gonna, this, some of you are going to come from a position of, well, this is what I heard growing up. This is what I was told. These are the things of the world. These are the things you can't do, can't have. What does God's word say about that? You see, there's a big difference. Personal holiness and things of the world, uh, there's a lot of different opinions on that, right? We'll, we'll talk about that. a clear view or a clear understanding of the doctrines of the gospel. Some might say, is that really vital to know the essentials of the gospel, the essentials of faith? Absolutely. But I don't think it's just something we're supposed to theologically know. I think these are things we're supposed to be able to defend. You should be able to tell that family member why you believe the gospel, why you believe the foundation of the faith. So when you're having a conversation at a holiday meal and the subject comes up, it's one of the the taboo subjects, don't talk about religion or politics, but when it comes up, do you just kind of slink away or do you say, look, no, I'm going to defend this because this is what I, this is what's true. You know, in this society, we don't want to offend anybody anymore, so now believers are just, they're just kind of backing down and saying, well, you know, I, I don't want to push my views on them. I'm, I'm not talking about being obnoxious. I'm just simply saying, defending something doesn't mean that you have to get ugly about it. But you know why you believe what you believe. Someone years ago... Simply, when they were having a discussion with somebody, they referenced me, and here's how they referenced. They were asking him, Well, why do you believe what you believe? And I I appreciate what the person said, but it's it's not what a pastor wants to hear. They said, Well, I believe it because that's what my pastor told me to believe. I didn't really like that answer. You need to be able to defend that yourself. It needs to be more than just, well, that's what my that's what my church teaches. Why do you believe that? And it's got to be more than just, well, that's that's what our church's statement of faith is. That's what what the pastor said. No, be able to defend it. So these are just marks of grace. Now, this begins, these marks of grace and their descriptions begin from verse 6 of chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 2 and covers all of these marks of grace. But then all of a sudden, in chapter 3, he starts over again. And he repeats many of the same things that he just spent an entire chapter telling us about. Again, you'll think he's rambling. He's not. Repetition is key. Now, he rephrases a couple things. But the five marks of grace are still the same. Now, you get chapters 4 and 5. Guess what's repeated again? These same marks of grace. Those are the five that are main ones. There are some others that he adds, but those are the five main ones. So, what is the what's the purpose of continuing to repeat these marks of spiritual life? Because these are things that are not just things that we know theologically. These marks of grace are privileges. They are privileges that we should value. They're things that we should look at and we say we are grateful that we are in possession of these things. But that also means with those privileges, there are responsibilities. There are obligations. Now, again, that sounds like legalism. Again, that's, that's a sign you don't know your Bible. Because nothing that God's asking us to do is legalistic. We don't look at it as an obligation. We look at this as the privilege of having these marks of grace in our life. How are we going to be able to protect from the dangerous situations that may present itself to this church? And again, I hope your answer is not, well, the pastor will keep us from that. Or, as we continue to pray, the elders will, if there were three elders here, you're just as much obligated to be able to recognize those dangerous situations at the door. It's not just about the leaders have to say, now what are we going to do about this? We also know, what does this mean for all of us? Again, just like we learned in 2 Peter, we have to be able to discern and give tests to what a heretic and a false teacher so that we will see them. And it's only after all of that that we start to see assurance. Our assurance, our great comfort that we get isn't just some feeling that comes over us. It's the result of living out True faith. Again, if, if, if I have to counsel somebody about assurance, often it starts off the way I just don't feel like I have assurance. And if you go by these marks of grace and you ask about these things, well, no, I'm just, I'm just struggling with whether I'm really saved or not. These things are what leads us to assurance. These marks So, again, there's a lot lot in this. I've spent a lot of time tonight kind of trying to set this. There's instruction that's going to come. And he repeats them so that we don't miss it. It's been said that almost every person has faith in something or someone. Yet there are thousands who profess faith in Christ in churches But yet, do not have true faith. True faith will produce these marks, these marks of grace, or fruit, we could call it, the Bible says. The faith of God's elect is a true faith because it's not produced by man, it's produced by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the grace of God. How do we come to know this Christ? It's through the preaching of the gospel. Some of you may or may not have seen this over the weekend, but the new fad in churches now is to use themes. Over the weekend, a rather large church decided that that was going to be Star Wars weekend. So they spent an entire weekend, they transformed their church building into Star Wars. Another church decided that they would get on board with what's popular now, and they had Barbie services. And the Mar i tell you, the Marvel superheroes have been they've been riding that for years now. This is what's happening in so-called churches, that if you were to go to lunch with some of those people, they would use some of the same terminology that you're using. But are you going to stand here and tell me, and this might sound harsh, are you going to stand here and tell me that true believers would turn the worship of God into Star Wars, Barbie, and Marvel superheroes? And they say, well, we all love the same Jesus. I don't think we do. Do you know that thoughts never crossed my mind? Like, I never sat in my study at home and said, you know what, I think what we really need to do is we need a Star Wars weekend. <laughs> so. If I can't, See, you all are discerning enough. You would say there's no way you're doing that. Right? So what kind of a congregation does it take to sit back and actually set record attendance records in those churches that a whole congregation of people can say this is fine because there's no discernment. And if there's no discernment, is there really conversion? Look, I'm not the seer of the heart. I'm just telling you. I don't think that crosses the mind. It doesn't cross the mind of a truly converted person as if that's the way. So a true believer will always be distinguished by their true faith that distinguishes them from a false faith. And it will be demonstrated in how they conduct themselves. Well, there's a lot more I could say about that, but I'll stop there tonight. So this is the true faith. And so that's where we're going with uh, the book of, of 1 John.